Acts chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. If you have the Pew Bible, that is on page 909. Please pay attention now to the reading of God's holy word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, as we dive in to this book, as we see the work, your work, in and through your church, God, may we be changed. May we recognize our place in the story. May we recognize how you are at work today in your church. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've all been a part of these arguments. Goes something like this. Which book or which movie in the series is the best? I think about the Star Wars series and I'm talking about four through six. We're not going to talk about episodes one through three. <laughs> yeah. But we might have debates about, you know, which, which one of those is the best. Maybe Lord of the Rings and, and The Hobbit, right? Which one of those are better? I'm dating myself a little bit here, but Karate Kid, right? Like, should they have continued making Karate Kid movies? Uh, Rocky movies? At some point, that discussion then turns to when should they have stopped, right? When should it have been like, okay, it's, it's time to be done? Sometimes it's clearly... They should have stopped after the first movie, right? The, the sequels kind of ruined the whole thing. And sometimes book two or movie two and whatever might come after it are a response to the success of the first one. And it makes sense, right? Sometimes, though, it's a desperation move. It's just a moneymaker. It's some marketing attempt to build a franchise. Well, somebody else did it, so let's see if we can do it, too. The book of Acts is, is none of these. The book of Acts is not some human plan by Luke to build off the success of the gospel account that he had written earlier. It wasn't Luke grasping for first century fame. It wasn't Luke saying, oh, if I really write a good follow-up to this, maybe I'll get a speaking tour around, you know, around Jerusalem and, and beyond. Maybe I'll get the equivalent of you know what's a podcast today he's he becomes like famous and has this this great following 
But what is it instead? What is the book of Acts? Most English translations, if you have the ESV, if you look at your heading there, it probably says the Acts of the Apostles, which we'll discuss a little bit later. So I said what it's not, but what is it then? Here's what Acts is. Acts is a continuation of the eternal plan and purposes of the triune God to call and redeem a people for himself. I'll say that again. Acts is a continuation of the eternal plan and purposes of the triune God to call and redeem a people for himself. There is no human equivalent to this, but it is a little bit more like the author who already had in mind the three-part trilogy before he began to write the first book, where the whole story from beginning to end was already in the mind of the author. Now, as we think about a human in this situation, obviously a human author will make changes as he or she goes along in the process. Editors will scratch things that don't make sense or are poorly worded, so it's, it's never going to be fully the work of a perfect work of a human author. But again, not so here with Acts. Acts is neither reactionary or, a word I made up, redactionary. It's not a redaction. It's not an edited text. It's not something that is trying to fit some agenda. We'll be looking very closely today as we kick off this series at the five W's. What's often called the journalistic questions. Who, what, where, when, why, right? We all learn these things as kids in school. But before we dive into these questions, I want us to consider some continuity with our sermon series that we did this summer in the Psalms, where we considered the different elements of the worship service, from the call to worship all the way to the benediction. James wrapped us up last week in Psalm 67 with the benediction and mentioned how God gets the first word and the last word in our worship. God calls us to himself, and then God sends us out and everything in between is a logical flow and it fits a purpose that God has for his people. Now, similarly, every good story has some important elements to it. There are lots of different lists. If you go look, look up the, what are the elements of a story, you'll find lists anywhere from five to eight different things and some combinations of, of, of the following. Elements of a story are plot, settings, characters, point of view, conflict, theme, tone, and style. Now, my goal here is not to bore you with an English lesson today, especially any college students are getting back into the swing of things and maybe have an English class. You're like, oh, gag me. That's the last thing I want to hear about. So this isn't going to be an English lesson. But to see, we need to see how Acts contains the essential elements of a story. Now, I put story in air quotes um, to highlight that this isn't something that's, that's made up. Sometimes we think of a story and we think of you know, a fairy tale or something that's made up. Maybe we call Acts a narrative account. I think it's okay to call it a story. I think we generally understand what we're talking about when we say it's a story. But we have to be careful that we don't fall into that trap of saying that, oh, the Bible is just made up of a whole bunch of really nice stories right? right? that we can learn from and that we can follow. It's, it's not something like Aesop's fables where we just learn some lessons from it, right? So a little disclaimer there. But let's look at the five W's of Acts that we see in these first five verses. And we're going to do so in order of their 
occurrence. So we begin with what? What is the book of Acts? Well, it is what I'm titling the sermon, the greatest sequel of all time. We see that in verse one where Luke says, in my first book, O Theophilus, he goes on to describe what he said in that book. So clearly Acts here is Luke's second book. It's a follow-up to his gospel account. That's the bare bones answer to what is Acts. In a sense, then, the who, when, and where elements all fall under the umbrella of the what. So as we look at those elements, we'll constantly be helping to helping this will be helping to answer specifics to the question, what is the book of Acts? So let's look at the who. And there are several ways that we can look at this. First, who wrote it? Now, although Luke doesn't name himself here, there are many first-person references throughout Acts. Uh, it refers to we later on in the travel journeys with Paul on his, on his missionary journeys. And Paul mentions Luke as a fellow worker in three of his different letters. I think the dead giveaway is the mention of Theophilus as the recipient of this book, who was also the recipient addressed in the first few verses of Luke's gospel account. So clearly it's the same writer. If we believe that Luke wrote Luke, then it's pretty clear that he also wrote Acts. And beyond Luke and Theophilus, the cast of characters in Acts is quite extensive. You'd think given that given the common English title that the 12 apostles dominate the landscape. But really after chapter one, the only one of the original 12 who appears regularly is Peter. And Peter and Paul end up being the main human characters, but they are really not the main focus of Acts. Well, who is then? Who is the main who in the book of Acts? It's not the apostles. It's not even Peter and Paul who take up a ton of space in Acts. And there's been a lot of scholarly debate on this matter. If you read even any short intro to Acts, like in the beginning of a study Bible, it's going to address this issue. The question is, should the, should the book instead be titled something like The Acts of the Holy Spirit? It's a very common thing that people like to refer to it as. Or The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus, as one fairly recent well-respected evangelical author's book suggests. Well, I want to offer an alternative suggestion. I want to share with you a very helpful book that I will be referring to several times uh, throughout this series. It's called The Mission of the Triune God, A Theology of Acts. It's in a series, a pretty new series called New Testament Theology. It's a series by Crossway. Um, I would say if you are wanting to do some reading on your own to kind of supplement the series in Acts, this is the one book that I would recommend. Under 150 pages, very accessible, uh, and it's just fantastic. I'm really excited. Uh, we have actually a copy of the Ephesians book in that series that I just gave to James. The Stevens Point Church plant is going to be doing Ephesians, so I think that's going to be a, a great supplement for him. Um, great, great series, great book. So if you're looking for some extra reading, highly recommend that. But the title of the book gives away the answer. And Patrick Schreiner, the author, makes the argument 
makes this argument in his introduction. He says, one can't speak about the Spirit, according to Acts, without putting him in the frame of the risen Christ. One can't speak of Christ without speaking of the Father's plan. One can't speak about the witness of the apostles without relating it to the empowering of the Spirit. This book is most fundamentally about the mission of the triune God. The book of Acts, Schreiner argues, is most fundamentally about the mission of the triune God. We cannot lose sight of that as we're going through this. That's a bold claim. Again, this is something we need to remind ourselves constantly of as we go through Acts over this next year or so. We're going to be spending a lot of time in this book, and we can't get lost in the details of the characters and the events that dominate the pages of this book. Because underneath it all, and behind it, and in front of it, and through it all, the triune God is working out his eternal plan of salvation. We must keep that in mind, God's eternal plan of salvation, as we think about the when of Acts. Now, in one sense, Acts is unique in salvation history, but it doesn't happen in a vacuum. We're going to see, especially in the speeches and the sermons that dominate this book, that there's a major connection with the Old Testament, specifically Old Testament prophecy that has been fulfilled in Jesus and is now clearly coming to bear as the Gentiles are brought in to the people of God. That's going to be a major theme that we see. So that's kind of the the big picture of when. But Luke narrows the scope here when he tells Theophilus that his first book is what Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. So all of Luke, up until the end, Luke ends with the ascension. That's what's covered here, what Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. That's the first book. We'll look specifically next week at verses 6 through 11 that are going to talk more specifically about the ascension. But Luke mentions here in verse 3 that Jesus appeared to his disciples for 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. He gets into a little bit of the what here in verse 2. It says that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, that he appeared to them during 40 days, and that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. We'll be talking a bit next week about the kingdom of God and about how the disciples misunderstood the purpose of Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God. And that's really a a continuation. This theme of of the kingdom of God is a continuation of Jesus' entire earthly ministry. And then Acts, so kingdom of God is what he was talking about here. And then Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome. Do you know what Paul was doing? People were coming to Paul in great numbers as he was in, under house arrest. And it says in Acts 28, 23, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. It's exactly what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus as he met with two of his disciples and then met with them uh, back in Jerusalem. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Then the last two verses in Acts say of Paul, again, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God 
and teaching with all boldness and without hindrance. So the book of Acts is bookended with this theme of the kingdom of God. It talks about how Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God. We see the kingdom of God expanding all throughout the book. And then the end, Paul is teaching about the kingdom of God. It's been said that the book of Acts ends with a comma. So the when of Acts is clearly defined in one sense, but it's, it's also, in a sense, indefinite. The work of Jesus began, the work that Jesus began to do and to teach, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the apostles initially, and then through the whole church, that will continue on throughout the ages until Jesus returns in glory. So we are living in a time after that comma. We're living in that continuation. And we're going to have plenty of time to consider how the church throughout the centuries is a continuation of these events. You may have heard of a church planting network called Acts 29. It's a very clever name. If you know, there are only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Acts 29 is saying this is a continuation, right? The continuation of the work of the church growing and building and expanding. This is very timely for us to be in the book of Acts as a church. We're in a big time of transition as we're preparing to launch people out and plant a church in Stevens Point. There's going to be a lot of things here that we see in the book of Acts that encourage us, that help us to see what it is that we're, we're about, what it is that we're even, what it is that we're up against, right? Out there in the world. It's worth mentioning here that this will bring up a whole host of difficulties as we consider how Acts applies to us today. Schreiner says that Acts is transitional and programmatic. As a transitional book, he says, Acts recounts non-repeatable events that establish the community of faith. But it's also programmatic in that it provides guidance for the church in every age. Schreiner argues that its message can't be locked in the past. Its accomplishments can't be relegated to a bygone era. Its miracles can't be separated to another age. The same spirit is still active. The same Christ still rules. The same God still, still sustains his church. The same resurrection day resides. And we see that, don't we? Every time that we gather together, most importantly as we gather for corporate worship on Sunday mornings, but in our other gatherings as well, whether it's gathering together in someone's home for a meal as we give thanks to God for who he is, for what he's done for us, as we encourage one another in our lives, or as we gather in more formal settings to study God's word and to pray together, these things are all reminders that the foundation that was laid in the book of Acts is still being built upon today. The church of Jesus Christ today is still growing. The word of God is still triumphing in the world despite opposition. We're going to get such a sweet picture of that in a few moments as Bishop shares his testimony and is baptized. Then we're going to come to the communion table and we're going to pro proclaim our faith in the risen Christ. We're going to proclaim it to the world around us. Now, as we do these things, it's not always going to look like it did in the book of Acts. That's what Schreiner is saying. Acts is transitional. There, there are many non-repeatable things, which we'll be diving into a lot as we go. But 
It's the same faith. It's the same triune God uniting us together to do his will. We need to keep that in mind. So this is a good time to mention the where of Acts. The only location that we see here in these verses is Jerusalem in verse 4. Jesus told his disciples not to depart from there, but to wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Again, this is something we'll see more next week as we see in verse 8, the promise to Jesus' followers that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, we'll, we'll see more what that means, what's the significance of those locations. But that pretty much covers the whole scope of the gospel going forth geographically in the book of Acts. The geographical where, we'll see that as we go through Acts. Now we come to the why, which I would argue is the most important question of all. Why? Why do we have the book of Acts? Why was this letter written? Why are we reading it today? Why are we preaching through this long letter? Well, these first few verses of Acts feel a little bit odd because Luke mentions his first book to Theophilus and what it was about, but then he doesn't really say, therefore, this is why I'm writing you this great sequel. And this is probably because Luke has already written his purpose statement. It's found at the beginning of Luke, which many scholars argue serves as the introduction to Luke and Acts together. So let's turn back there together to the beginning of Luke for a moment. It's just two books back. If you have the Pew Bible, that's on page 855. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitness and witnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Paul's primary concern was Theophilus's certainty concerning the things he had been taught about Jesus. Now, there is some debate about the identity of Theophilus. Some say that he wasn't an actual person, but maybe this is a pseudonym used to represent all of the people of God. The name Theophilus can mean beloved of God or lover of God. So it can be that active or passive. I tend to lean towards Theophilus being an actual person. I don't think it was this pseudonym to represent uh, all of the church. I think the best argument for, for that is where Paul or Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. The only other times that term is used is uh, later on in Acts when Paul calls uh, Festus and Felix. He calls them most excellent Festus, most excellent Felix. So uh, Theophilus is probably in some authority role like those two were. Uh, that, I think that's the, 
the best argument for that. But really, at the end of the day, not a huge deal. Because I think if we take the view that Theophilus is representative of the church, that works, right? Luke and Acts were also written for us. Luke and Acts were written so that we might have certainty. Simon Kistemacher in his commentary says, the purpose of Acts, the why, was to convince Theophilus that no one is able to hinder the victorious march of Christ's gospel. No one is able to hinder the victorious march of Christ's gospel. Isn't this the assurance that we need today? We need to have this why answered in the same way that Theophilus did. There are questions that abound for us today about the nature of the kingdom of God in relation to the world that we live in. About how we are called to live for Jesus and to be citizens of another kingdom while we still remain in this world. That's one of the just most frustrating things at times, right? As, as believers, we try to figure out how do, we, how do we live in this world? How do we interact in this world? How do we be in the world and not of the world and be faithful to Christ and what he calls us to? We can't completely remove ourselves from this world. We have to be in this world and just that wrestling with, with Christ and, and these issues of culture and, and how do we interact? We're going to be talking a lot about those things in the book of Acts. Again, as we prepare to plant a church, as we trust God to see the gospel go forward to Stephen's point and beyond, as we are encouraged by the work of church planting in our presbytery, we realize that it's, we don't just stroll into some town and say, hey guys, we're here, we're going we're gonna to fix the world, we're going to solve everybody's problems, come and hear what we have to say. No, there's going to be opposition, right? There's going to be people who don't want us here. There's going to be people who don't want to hear what we have to say. But that's no different than the early church. So we should be encouraged. And then there's questions about the uncertainty of the future. Have you watched the news lately? It feels like, and I'm not going to get political here, but it feels like every article about anything going on is like end of the world, right? If it's something about climate change or, or natural disasters, it's like, the end is coming. It's just, just like, ah, like you can't even read anything without just feeling this doom and gloom. And even this like increased fascination with aliens. I'm seeing this stuff everywhere. It's just like, what is going on? A Pew Research poll that was done last year and released in December found that 39% of Americans believe we are living in the last days. 23% of people with no religious affiliation also believe that. That seems pretty high, actually. If you go out on the street and you talk to four people who say, I don't go to church, I don't believe in God, one of those four is going to say, man, we're living in the last days. Like, what? That blows my mind. So there's this, there's this fascination, right? There's this reality that things are, are crazy. Things are, are coming to, to a, a, a climax, right, in history. I think the point is that people are looking for answers. And this is a sermon. This is not just a book report. It's kind of maybe felt a little bit like a book report up until now, which is all fine and good. But again, those who are back in school are like, I don't want to hear a book report. Don't talk to me about that kind of stuff. I've given some helpful information to try to understand the overview of Acts, how we should approach it. But this is not an intellectual 
pursuit. It's not just information. We need to be changed. We need to be transformed continually by God's word. We need to be a community that lives like we believe we're living in the last days and who sees a world around us that's desperate for answers to life's deepest questions. If one in four people out there don't believe anything and they think we're living in the last days, like there's an open door, right? People want to talk. People are curious. People want answers. They want to know what's going on. And for God's people, the book of Acts is a wonderful journey. For us, it's almost like a a genealogy study where we find out where we came from. We get to go back and we get to read about those who have gone before us in this long family history. We get to see how our triune God has been faithful to accomplish his purposes throughout all of redemptive history and how we today play a part in that. Acts is an invitation for us to deeper communion with our triune God. It's not an elevation of humans and their accomplishments. We're going to be spending a lot of time looking at people and the things that they accomplished for God, but that's not the main point of Acts. It's written so that we might have certainty. Christian, let us rejoice in what our God has done for us and let us enjoy this journey together as we seek to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, our risen and ascended and reigning King. And if you're here today and you are not yet a Christian, you must wrestle with the implications of this book. If Jesus is who he says he is, and he really died on the cross, and he really rose from the dead, and he really ascended into heaven, and he really is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he really sent his Holy Spirit to empower a bunch of ragtag followers to be his witnesses, how else is it that they could have went out and turned the world upside down if this was just some made-up story? No way. I'm not buying it for a minute. And I think the one in four person out there on the street who says there's got to be something more isn't buying it either. How are you sitting here today hearing this message if it was simply human ingenuity or willpower that brought about the spread of Christianity? It wasn't. And you're not. You're hearing of the risen and the reigning Christ, the one who died so that you might live. The one who rose and conquered the grave so that death would no longer have mastery over you. The question for all of us, will we trust him today? Will we turn to him, whether for the 10,000th time or for the first time? Will we surrender our lives to him? Will we live for him in his glory? Will we go out boldly like those in the book of Acts, not fearing what the world might throw at us? Will we seek to be his witnesses in the world. That's the call for us, brothers and sisters, to trust our triune God, to trust his plan, that he's working out his plan of redemption, and that nothing, the gates of hell, cannot stand against it. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for your plan of redemption. We are so thankful for what you have done for us in Christ. We are so thankful for this book that we get to get an inside look at what Jesus did and continues to do. God, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the call on our lives to be witnesses 
to be ambassadors for you. We thank you that you reign supreme and that we can trust you with our lives. God, send us out from here to serve you. God, to make you known to a world that is desperate for answers. Be honored and glorified in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.